One of the Family. Welcome to One of the Family. It's a very special one, this episode, through no fault of mine. Uh, Myths and Legends. Myths. It's a wonderful book, Aesop's Animals, by the zoologist Joe Wimpany. And basically, Joe looks at the ancient fables. Do they tell us anything about how animals see the world? And we will be talking dogs. Legends. Les Dennis. I mean, almost a beetle. When I was a kid growing up, when the Beatles were in Liverpool, I went to the same school, Quarry Bank, that John Lennon had gone to. So, um, but I wanted to be Jimmy Tarbuck. <laughs> I wanted to be the fifth Beatle, the funny, floppy-haired one with the with the pocket watch and who hosted uh, Sunday Night at the London Palladium. That was that was what I wanted, rather than. So I didn't I didn't go to Hesse's, the famous music shop in in Liverpool and get Bert Whedon's play in a day. So I regret that. I regret that I didn't. Now I'm in musicals. I regret that I didn't learn an instrument. Yeah. Wasn't it Jimmy Tarbuck, the Royal Variety, who looked up at the Royal Box and said, that reminds me, I must get a stamp. Uh, (laughs) Probably. And John Lennon, of course, famously at the Royal Variety said, you know, about rattle your jewellery. Yeah, Yeah. you in the posh seats, rattle your jewellery. Ladies and Right, <laughs> game show heaven. More from Les. It's beautiful stuff from Les. Later on, we cover the whole gamut. So, the zoologist Dr. Joe Wimpany talking about. Well, we're going to discuss dogs, obviously. But I've discovered that Joe used to work with crows, and I had a horrific, an horrific experience recently with a crow. I was with my dog and I was looking at a a young crow, so I presume that's why, which was trying to fly a fledgling. Uh And I stood there looking at it with my dog and all of a sudden... (coughs) Hitchcockian. Yep. We carried on walking and it followed us. Yep. Swooping. It was a crow black day. It was terrifying. What was going on there? Did it actually hit you? Did it actually, like... Very near. ...land on your head? I could hear it. The rush of air on the top of my head and maybe even a little tiny touch I said to my dog we're out of here yeah I'm not surprised I've been attacked many times by the crows that I used to work with Um, and one of the things you learn when you're working with crows is never to turn your back on them if in doubt just look at them Uh, don't turn your back on them so what was it doing protecting her young yeah they're really protective there are definitely reports in Australia of people being dive-bombed by uh, magpies in the breeding season. So you kind of know not to, just not to go near them when it's breeding season. They will attack. Do they have self-awareness? That's one of the things we're going to discuss. Do they know their crows? Do they know that other crows know that they're crows? Do they know that the other crows know that they know that the other crows <laughs> no. are crows? That's the deal, isn't it? That, that's it. Meta. This comes to a, an understanding of death. With dogs, in my experience, there's an acceptance of absence. If they see the body, they kind of move on. 
But if they don't, they, they're wondering where that other dog is. And I've, um, a woman on the common was telling me the heartbreaking story of her dog died down at the vets. The other dog wasn't there. And every time that dog sees a black lab, runs up to it mm. and then kind of slows down, disappointment, realizing it's not uh, the black mm -hmm. lab that she wanted it to be. So where does an understanding of death come into this on, on the spectrum Oof. of cognition? That's a good question. I mean, it totally makes sense again, doesn't it? That uh, if a long-standing companion is suddenly just gone, um, there's no explanation. There's, there's, there's nothing that can kind of provide that information to to the dog and so yes they would probably take every opportunity to to investigate individuals that they think up you know up to the point because their noses are so sensitive that they would you know very rapidly know that that it's not their companion um i remember our our dogs when i was growing up we had a golden retriever and we had um two irish setters and i remember the retriever yeah, just going out and laying down in the sun and she was old and she just died very gently in her sleep in the sunshine. And, and I, re I remember the setter at the time going up and spending quite a lot, long time with her actually and um, sniffing around and, and just seeming to want to be with her. And I don't think there's any easy answer of what do they actually understand whether they have a concept of death, I think um, that's a much, much harder question to answer. Mm. And France Duval says in the book, it's, a, it's like an onion, it's not them and us. There are, there are, there are different levels of cognition, different levels of self-awareness. It's not like we're self-aware and everybody else isn't. Uh, I wish we were self-aware sometimes, some of us. I completely agree. And, and one of the big kind of aims for Aesop's animals was to try and encourage people to just think a little bit more outside of this very human-centric view. It, and it's natural that when we come to think about animal minds, we interpret all of it through the lens of being human. We, we can't do it any other way. That's all that we know. Because of things like Aesop's fables, we still kind of have this these preconceptions of what animals are like, which are fundamentally based around human constructs. For the purposes of the book, I'll talk as if he was a real person because it's easier than caveating every mention with, you know. The reality is that Aesop's fables are real and have shaped our whole sort of cultural consciousness. And it's completely based around constructs of human emotion and human um, attributes because they were designed to be telling moral messages they were designed to be educating people on the foibles of human fallacy um, they weren't about animal behavior and yet we face this incredible situation where these two thousand potentially two and a half thousand year old stories still inform how we think about other animals um, and I think that's quite staggering, actually. I'm all for anthropomorphizing because I think it's better to do that than not to do that. I think it leads to better outcomes if we anthropomorphize, you know. Uh, it leads to better welfare and uh, better consideration of uh, um, where we are 
in the great scheme of things. I mean, God is anthropomorphized all the time. Yeah. So let's hear, read by the great Mark Moran, the great actor, good friend, great actor, yeah. Aesop's fable, the fable which relates to the dog. And then we can spin off and talk about dogs. And you know what? There's lots to talk about. <laughs> yes, there is. A dog crossing a bridge over a stream with a piece of flesh in his mouth saw his own shadow in the water and took it for another dog, with a piece of meat double his own in size. He therefore let go his own and fiercely attacked the other dog to get his largest piece from him. He thus lost both, that which he grasped at in the water because it was a shadow, and his own because the stream swept it away. Moral? It is not wise to be too greedy. Does a dog know it's a dog? <laughs> That's the whole question, isn't it? Let's let's just caveat it again because I'll caveat everything. Well, it knows we're not a dog. Yeah. That's a key to this, isn't it? It, it knows us and loves us and we're part of its world and it knows that we are not a dog. I don't even know that we can conclusively say that, perhaps. They certainly know that they're part of our family. You know, they know that they fit into the social group of the family and they know their place within, you know, the different people within, within the group. Does a dog have a concept of a person and how it's different? Alexander Horowitz, you mentioned in your book, who's marvellous when it comes to umwelt, how dogs see the world, a German word meaning our perception of the world. Yeah. Um, and I think she suggests, I'm sure it was her, that dogs probably know that we're not dogs. But as to whether they can, you know, rationalise it is, is a different thing. And this is, this is, again, what you're talking about. We're judging things on our own criteria. Let's take the piss. <laughs> Other dogs urine. Yep. This is an, another amazing experiment you mentioned. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah, it absolutely is. So this study was done by a researcher called Mark Beckoff. Um, he's based in Colorado. Um, and he was kind of approaching it because the paradigm at the time was uh, that self-recognition could only be evaluated using mirrors. So the accepted kind of mm. wisdom was that uh, chimpanzees and orangutans pass the mirror test uh, like humans and the rest of the animal kingdom fails. And so it is kind of like, yeah, you pass or you fail. So you're either self-aware or you're not self-aware and kind of very black and white but but now we have more evidence like you said there are there's evidence in um asian elephants mm. magpies uh little fish called cleanerass there was a study published very recently showing um even that horses were reporting that horses can can recognize their reflection too and they wanted to see whether dogs would do it um and they found that they had zero interest in the mirror they they just weren't interested. Uh, and so from that, you should say, well, they, they failed the test, so they are not self-aware. But Mark just didn't believe that. And I think a lot of people who 
research dog behavior who are biologically trained perhaps there's a difference maybe between people coming from a psychology background people coming from a biology background I don't know but he was thinking more about the ecology and the lives of the dogs and whether or not this was relevant to them and I think that he was out walking his dog Jethro uh, along Boulder Creek in Colorado and he just sort of had the thought well does Jethro recognize you know recognize his own urine so he did this amazing experiment over five winters where every time he took Jethro out um, he waited for his dog to go to the toilet um, and his dog would then you know race off into the undergrowth doing what dogs do having a good old sniff uh, and Mark would very deftly pick up the the yellow snow and move it down the path and he would do the same thing when he saw another dog um, having a pee he would take that urine he'd move it further down the path and then Jethro would happen upon it uh, and he saw that Jethro spent a lot longer investigating the urine of other dogs than he did of his own and very frequently he would you know he'd sniff it for a long time um, and he'd then urinate over it when he was done um, so this kind of kicked off the whole idea that self-awareness might not be limited to a visual sense that perhaps for dogs there's something in their olfaction there's something about their their sense of smell that might be more relevant for them and then the dog's own pee has been tampered with so he recognized the parts of the pee that were his and he thought this but there's something strange about this i am me but the pee says that i am not entirely me mm. because of the because of the other pee now that's interesting. Yeah. It? Yeah. So this was one of Alexandra Horowitz's experiments. So she was inspired by Mark Beckoff's work on the yellow snow test. Um, she wanted to do it more experimentally and she wanted to sort of do um, an olfactory analog. So uh, based on the mirror test, she wanted to do the olfaction equivalent in an experimentally controlled way. Um, so she asked owners to take a sample of their dogs, brought them in, and then the dogs had a choice between two different canisters. So it was either they had a little sample of their own urine or a little sample of another dog's urine um, or a sample of their own urine that had a little bit of something else in it. She found that dogs spent a lot longer sniffing a sample of their own urine when it had this this other smell in it compared with just a, a pure sample of their urine. What's the possible conclusion of that in one line? I know that she was cautious in her conclusions, uh, but suggested that it may be a partial, at least a partial self-awareness. So it's not it's not a full replica of Gallup's mirror test because what he measured was how the apes responded to their altered reflection so you know the red spot was on the eyebrow or on the ear and they investigated it so he could tell that they were you know they were actually interested in their reflection for Alexandra's test the dog isn't really able to investigate itself in the same way so it's sort of missing that extra link but it very much seems as if they realize that 
that their self-concept had, had changed in a way. I remember my history teacher at school saying, if you went back to the Middle Ages in a time machine, the first thing you would notice would be the smell. And I think if, obviously, if we, if we turned into a dog in a different way, the first thing that we would notice would be a smell. And I always think that if we could just be a dog for three minutes, I know that we were being a dog. Not, not becoming a dog in that sense, but you know, being, being able to be objective about it. Um, I think we, we would be driven mad, wouldn't we, by everything that we were sm smelling. I think that three minutes would be almost like a three minutes in hell because it, things would be coming at us that yeah. we didn't understand. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting thought experiment. And I think you're right. It would be overwhelming. It would be completely overwhelming. To, to experience the world in the way that a dog does. We can't even, we, that's the thing, we can't ever imagine it. We have no way of comparing that to a, a known experience. Interesting, isn't it? Thank you so much to Dr. Joe Wimpany telling us all about Aesop's animals. It is a fabulous book. And the moral of the story is, as I used to say all the time to my former co-presenter and my very good friend, Sheila Fogarty, and she still reminds me about it whenever I see her. The moral is, dogs know stuff. But I don't have to tell you that. Come on. I love Les. Les Dennis, he's had the most amazing career. He's a brilliant human being. And you know what? He loves dogs. I was listening to you and, and, and your story about Candy the dog. Mm. And it, was, it was just really moving. Mm. Did you have a childhood dog? Yeah, we had a dog called Dusty, who was, um, as my mum called, uh, a Heinz 57 variety. So, you know, uh, a mongrel that, that we, uh, I don't even know where we got Dusty from, um, whether Dusty just turned up, but Dusty was our, our childhood dog and fond memories I can remember. I, I remember hilariously laughing one time when Dusty came in to the front lounge um, with a front lounge, we only had one lounge. Um, I was going to say, this is <laughs> baronial. No, it, <laughs> In working class Liverpool, we had a, <laughs> we had this little lounge or parlour, as we used to call them. And uh, Dusty came in bumping his head because he he managed to get his head stuck into the tin of dog food that clearly was in the bin and uh, couldn't get it out. And so <laughs> Dusty was bumping all over the place with this tin of dog food on, trying to lick the, the remains of it. And how old were you when Dusty was around? Uh, I suppose I would have been about. 10 when we got Dusty and Dusty was around until about 15, 16. Yeah. Good age. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And losing Dusty was a blow. It was a blow. Yeah. First, first dog, first love of a dog, you know, and, and kind of, I don't think Dusty was my dog. It, you know, I think, I think um, because my dad was the one that went out and walked the dogs, the same as I am now with, with our kids' dogs. Um, I'm the walker, so so um, Dusty was always my dad's dog, I think. 
you can clear your head when you're walking. I can see you there. You know, got so yeah. much stuff. Yeah, I mean, you've done everything, and it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. What your career is absolutely extraordinary. Just 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 looking at it, you know, everything from you know, Gilbert and Sullivan to Gilbert Coming O'Sullivan. Up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's amazing. You know, the comedy, the acting, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the you know, yeah. opera, musicals. It's I've got to say, it's absolutely fabulous. You must pinch yourself sometimes and think. Well. Um, when I did the when I did the Adams family, um, one of the reviews in the Guardian said, "In the long, strange career of Les Dennis, he makes yet another left turn." <laughs> That's how I feel. You know, I always want to be challenged. So when a job comes up that I think, "Ooh, I don't know, that's a bit scary," I'll have a go, mm. and that's what I do. Yeah. Mm. You're in the dressing room right now, just to yes. tell our listeners, and you've got, you're on stage with, tell us about the show, which is on at the moment, and you've got, this, this is the time, at the time of recording, Yeah, audiences are allowed back into theatres. Amazing. It's unbelievable. Um, we are at the Coliseum, London Coliseum, um, on St. Martin's Lane, and I am playing Wilbur Turnblad, husband of Edna, played by the wonderful Michael Ball. Um, and it is an absolute joy to do. We have been here now since the 21st of June. Um, we we started with uh, socially distanced audiences and we weren't allowed to have more than a thousand people in the auditorium. Um, but as Michael said during that time, they were making the noise of 3000 because it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's a show that's so, I think, timely right now you know the, the 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 whole subject matter and the joy of the bubblegum pop music of it mm-hmm. um and then uh on the in july we we went um a couple of weeks ago we went to full capacity so oh. we're playing to 2300 people a wow. show we've got we've got a matinee today with that many in and then another show tonight it is absolutely joyous to do and to see people so thrilled to be back in a theater is is just great ah i mean i had a taste of it a little i had a little taste of it (laughs) all-star musicals on itv they got six you could reasonably sing and i did uh, from chicago i did razzle dazzle and it was 2300 people in the state and i've got to tell you and you know this you're a a show person but i was (laughs) uh I was like coming down the steps, like give them the old <laughs> razzle dazzle, razzle dazzle, and like there's dancers and everything. And I hit this note at the top. This this, this was not you know Caruso. This was not Pavarotti. Yeah. This was not Michael Ball. But I I hit this note. Um, so then the great bit sorcerer you are. Away. No so I, so I and I held it, and the entire because they were on for it and they were part of it. But the entire audience stood up. And cheered. And I tell you what, Les, that was one of the greatest moments of my life. You would be a great Billy Flynn. Have they not asked you to do that? Have they never asked you? I was expecting at least Caractacus Potts. Nothing. (laughs) Oh, well, you should. You should make that move as well. um, Because I I did Chicago and played uh, Mr. Cellophane, which Mm. was a a great thrill. And that's a massive note as well at the end. So um, you always kind of brace yourself for that for that big note my point is though the thrill of it the thrill of yeah. what you're doing with a live audience especially yes. after what we've been through and what yeah. everybody yeah. has endured and there you are it must be you know the buzz of the theater the the excitement the adrenaline doing what you do so brilliantly i mean you're living your best life right now aren't you it's it's fantastic yeah absolutely for 
18 months. I was at home. I've got, I'm an older dad with, with kids. I had a, um, a, a family, two, two kids again. I've got a son, Philip, who's 41. And then um, Eleanor came along when I was 55. Barry Cryer said, it's a great age to be a, a new dad because you're up three times a night anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then Tom came along. And so I've got two kids. And um, last year was homeschooling. But yeah, to get back into a theatre and to be in front of a live audience is just absolutely joyous. And, and um, Michael and I, as Edna and Wilbur, have this wonderful number at the um, top of Act Two called You're Timeless to Me. Uh, and it's a front cloth kind of vaudeville number. And the reaction from the audience every night we come off and Michael just says that is just the best thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, Michael's yeah. been on this podcast, which is actually yeah. a better yeah. thing to do than that. <laughs> yeah, thing. yeah, but... it is. <laughs> what dogs have you got now then? And how important are they to you? Well, my dogs are really important to me. And the I, I think I'd probably got to the point where I wouldn't have had dogs anymore because um, it kind of, my, when I was 20, 21, married to Lynn, we had uh, a dog, a Cavalier King Charles um, Moe, uh, which we pretentiously named after the champagne Moe. And I think um, uh, her mama had one called Shandon. So, <laughs> uh, and, and, and poor Moe had um, a trypsian deficiency, uh, which was really heartbreaking. She had this um, deficiency that meant that she was always hungry, always starving, and, you know, ended up eating things she shouldn't eat that had come out the other side. And um, we had to, you know, make the decision to, to let her go. And that was kind of heartbreaking. And then um, I had dogs later, um, uh, kind of, and, and then lost them in, in a custody battle. But um, then um, having kids now, and they wanted dogs, so we got dizzy. Uh, I think uh, Dizzy is about eight now, um, and we have Maya, who is just a year old, and she was our um, our lockdown puppy, and uh, they're lovely, lovely dogs. And I I, I find, um, as I'm the one that gets them to go out for walks, well, no, I don't have to get them to go out for walks. They, they as soon as I open the the drawer where the leads are, pew, they're ready to go. Um, I, I love my walk with them through the woods and, and uh, it's, for me it's, it's, it's very calming and soothing to have that, that time with them. Are they affectionate in the evening? Do they jump up? Oh, they're, they're really affectionate. And I thought at first that Dizzy, being the older one, when the puppy came along, wouldn't be up for it. But it's, it's made her a younger dog. She kind of runs around with Maya and Maya's a little, little terrier. Well, she's not a terrier. She's a... She's a what what uh, Dizzy is a Lassapoo, Lassarapsu Poodle Cross, and Maya is what they call a Shipu, which is a Shih Tzu and Poodle Cross. I presume they don't want to call it a Shih Tzu, a Shih Tzu. Um, but you know, for the first six months, she certainly was a Shih Tzu. <laughs> uh, so we've got these two dogs, and they're and they're great together. I couldn't um, imagine not having dogs in this house in this family. No, no. No, I know. I, you know, I think when my my time when I was single before I met Claire, I think I'd resigned myself to not having a dog. And then 
when the kids came along and uh, and they wanted dogs, um, it's it's livened my love of them again. Yeah, you mentioned the custody battle. Without going into any details, <laughs> I often interview, you know, divorce lawyers on the radio when we're doing items of items about divorce, whether they're changing or tweaking divorce laws, or whether there's some big divorce story or some big alimony story or some big. Yeah. But the divorce lawyers always say that it's the dogs and the it's dogs, the, yeah, and the custody yeah. battles, which mm -hmm. are yeah. the cause of such yeah. bitterness, yeah. you know, because you love the dogs so much and they become yeah. a proxy for. Yeah, you know, acrimony, don't they? Yeah, well, you know, um, it was suggested, oh, we can share the dogs. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. That's why would we share them? One dogs backwards and forwards. That's like a tug of love. So I gave them up and um, uh, lovely dogs. Yeah. Heartbreaking, though. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. God, it had to be done. Yeah. 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 One of the family. We met before many, many years ago, and I think you were married to somebody else, and I was married to somebody else, and I was right. walking down at like Highgate or something. Highgate, I yeah. remember that having yeah. that chat because yeah. I think at that time we, I mean, we were both, we had both been game show hosts. I probably still was a game show host of Family Fortune. I wish I was. I wish you I still was. Wheel a of Fortune. Look at the money. I, I know. I know. Me too. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's difficult not to be influenced by Bob Monkhouse. Yeah. He was a master, wasn't he? He was oh great. He was just, and the loveliest man. Did you know him? Yeah, I met him once. I yeah. interviewed him. He was delightful. Mm. Oh, he, he was great. I went to his 70th birthday party and he asked me to speak. And I remember sitting at the table and um, uh, who was it? Uh, Ronnie Barker and David Jason. They both went, you're quiet. I went, I'm speaking. They went, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> they went, brown trousers time. <laughs> Ronnie Barker said, why didn't you wear your brown trousers? <laughs> when I look at Wheel of Fortune, though, now, I look at you on Challenge TV and I think, God, there's a guy who can do it. And you're <laughs> relaxed and you were funny. And I look back at me and I think, I, I wish I could, in a sense, have my time again and be kind of more relaxed. Well, that... Trying to prove myself all the time. No, I don't, I don't no, think I'm not that. I think... No, I'm not fishing no. for compliments here. I'm not, but you, I'm really, no, I'm, no. I do it so much better now. I listen to you talking on uh, Mike. Fenton Stevens podcast talking about the fact of, of feeling that um, imposter syndrome. That's something I feel all the time. When I went to the RSC and on that first morning thought, oh my God, I'm here with all these amazing actors and you know, I'm from the working men's clubs. You know, we all we all look back at things and think I could have done it better. But I I think Wheel of Fortune that you did was great. Yeah. It was a really good show. It was a good show. It was a good format. It's, it was a format mm. you, you couldn't fail on. But no, really, I, I, I wish... I, this isn't about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just... But... It, imposter syndrome, yeah. I get, see, in, in, in the company of tremendously talented people, I don't feel that I deserve to be there. You get a bit of that as well, do you? I get that all the time. Yeah, I really do. Like, I'm, I am going to be in this theatre when we finish Hairspray. In fact, I start rehearsals two weeks before we finish Hairspray. I'm um, doing Gilbert and Sullivan's um, HMS Pinafore. And, you know, I had to go and do my, um, my vocal test because, you know, here with Hairspray, we, of course, are mic'd um, and have great sound. Um, and I didn't realize that when you do opera, um, there are float mics, but you won't have um, personal microphones. And... It's a 2,300 seater and I have to compete with these wonderful opera singers. And I had to go and stand on stage in front of the great and good of the ENO and, and sing for them. And they say, 
yeah, that's fine. We don't need any extra amplification, which I, was great. But my, my imposter syndrome before I, I had that call was incredible. You know, just I was thinking, what, what am I doing here? You know, opera. Um, you know, I got chucked out of the choir when I was 11, the school choir. <laughs> so, you know, what am I doing here? And also but, for um, you, that working class guy from Liverpool, there you are with all those posh people and thinking, yeah. you know, with all their sort of uh, very nice, I'm sure, but they're swaggering their self-confidence. Yeah. I get I get that because it makes up my adoption, rejection and all sorts of right, other, right. other issues. But I know exactly what you mean. But then you know, I'm sure it went in a jiffy when you got into it. Once you start, you think, I can do this. You know, I, 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 clearly, you know, I, when I went for the audition, um, my lovely friend, Cal McChrystal, who was directing, um, he, he wanted me and he was championing for me. But I had to go then uh, with the casting director at the ANO, Michelle Williams, and um, Chris Hopkins, the conductor, and sat in a room. And this was before the first lockdown. Um, came here and did and sat in a room, um, or rather stood in a room and sang um, the uh, what's when I was a lad, you know, the the song that the Sir Joseph Porter sings as the ruler of the Queen's Navy, and I sang it for them, and they went, yeah, that's great, you've got the job, and that's never happened to me before. You know, you usually wait three, four weeks for the phone to ring, and every time it rings, you think, oh. Oh, it's my wife. And oh, I want it to be my agent. I want to know if I've got this job. And I got the job in the room, and that was incredible. And the conductor said, It's great, you, you are trained. And I'm not. But I what I I do, um, and you know, by wanting to have a diverse career, what I do is I go out and seek training. And I found a lovely singing teacher, Janet Edwards, years ago when I did when I first did Me and My Girl at the Adelphi. Um, which again was a thrill to do. Um, I found a singing teacher and I would go to her every week. So in a way, I'm trained, but I've done it mm, myself. Fantastic. So which dog has broken your heart most? I think Moe uh, was the one because um, it was, um, Lynn and I, Lynn was pregnant with Philip and uh, and it was a decision the vet said, look, we can, we can do, give you tablets for this trypsin deficiency, but her suffering is not good, you know, and and whenever she was making a mess in the garden and then going and eating it, it was it was hard to see and hard to watch. Um, and so, you know, um, I remember Lynn walking out the door that morning. I couldn't do it. I couldn't take her. And um, and then when she came back and we both cried, it was it, uh, it's a memory. Yeah. Should you did you not want to be there? Did you not think that you had to be there? Uh, I, th I think I was, I was a bit of a coward and decided not to be there. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't deal with it. So, um, so Lynn took her, yeah. You love animals generally. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated well, I, by animals. Fascinated. I love absolutely. Them. Well, I, I I have to love them because we we have a small menagerie now. We have we have uh, two dogs, a lovely cat called Libby, who was our was Eleanor's first pet when she was four. I love Libby. Libby is just the best cat. Um, we have two rabbits and a hamster. So you know, um, yeah. So so we have my, my daughter Eleanor is. 
really um, an animal lover. She has an empathy with animals, and I love to see that. It's great, and, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. So the cat, Libby. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I've said it before. Some people are, oh, cats, no. Dogs, yeah. it's not It's not as simple as dogs or cats, because although I love dogs and yeah. adore dogs, have done all my life, I'm cat curious. I am. Yeah. The rest of the family, like my wife would, would think that a cat was, in fact, a witch in animal form, <laughs> like right. I used to think, um, for the ducking stool. But I'm, I am cat curious because they come in all different so many different like dogs but there are so yeah. many different personalities i was i was chatting to the 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 post person post woman and she said oh you've got nice dogs i was just coming back from the walk and i said yeah do you have dogs and she said i've got three cats and <laughs> i said are they friendly and she said oh one of them is really friendly the other one uh, is not friendly at all and the third is friendly on her own terms. And I thought, how fascinating. Right. Is, yeah. Libby, is Libby friendly? Does she seek Libby, out affection? She's kind of, she can be aloof, like all cats can be, but she does seek affection. And she, she, is, um, she, she copes with the dogs absolutely fine. She just, you know, kind of ignores them and they, they want to play with her and she doesn't want to know. Ricky Gervais, and I know you know him, um, he, he was on the podcast talking about cats. He was on, I, I said, look, making the case for cats. And he came on and he made the case for cats and dogs and all animals because, you know, he's such a champion. But he said that um, the thing about cats is there are a few steps closer to the wild than dogs. And it's like having a, having a tiger, a little wild animal. Cats are the only animals that domesticated themselves. They just wandered into civilization and said, feed me. They're incredible as well, because their meow, that's made up for us. They don't communicate like that. They worked out that meow gets them fed. They're, they're, quite, they're, they're, they're little hustlers. Yeah. I love that phrase as well, that um, uh, cats used to be worshipped as gods and they've never forgotten it. <laughs> yes. I think that's so great. And there's another one that um, uh, dogs have owners, cats have staff. Working with Ricky in extras, um, yeah. and I know you've, you've spoken about this on, on many an occasion because it was such a cherished experience, I'm sure. Yeah. What a challenge, playing, playing yourself, but yes. not, your, not yourself, like a version yeah. of yourself, which is not, it's another very attractive version of yourself. Well, right? how they pitched it, when Ricky called me, when my agent said, um, Ricky Gervais wants your number, I was like, is this wind up and and they, oh, and they said will you call him and I called and I thought it's not Ricky it's John Culshaw having a, a laugh because I got his voicemail and then he called me back hello it's Ricky yeah we want you to come and play a twisted demented version of yourself <laughs> that's that's how he pitched it to me and I thought okay um and then he said think Larry Sanders think Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I love both of those shows. And Me you too. know, in it, mm. lot, lots of kind of Hollywood A-listers would lampoon themselves. Um, and so I thought, right, I know where you're coming from. And then when I went in to meet him and, and, and Stephen, um, and they had a board up with all the names of all the episodes and the, and the guest stars, Ben Stiller, 
<laughs> he was in Curb as well, wasn't he? And he, he really lampooned himself in Curb. Ben, yes. Ben a very yeah, funny yeah, performance. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I see, you know, Kate Winslet, Samuel L. Jackson, and then it said, the man. They said, that's your episode. And, you're, <laughs> and they said, all the others, all the A-listers, they're doing kind of um, uh, cameos, but this is about you. Um, and they told me the idea for it. Uh, and I went, yeah, great. And they said, how far can we go? And I said, go as far as you want. And if I don't like something, I'll I'll say. And the it was quite brutal, though, wasn't it? It, it was sort of well, lost was, love and love lorn yeah, and all that sort of yeah, stuff. It, it was it was a hard watch for um, for people. It was you know, but then Ricky's stuff always is. Um, and but I knew that if I got it right, uh, it was a chance for me to kind of have a a kind of renaissance and show people that I wasn't less miserable, you know, which is what I, what was, what, what all the papers were calling me. And, you know, and uh, on the front of, when I came out of the big uh, brother house um, on the front of the Sunday mirror, uh, it said, is this the most pathetic man in Britain? God. It's unnecessary to be so mm. relentlessly nasty. As Buddha yeah. said, is it kind and is it necessary? Yeah. You know? Mm. Good old Buddha. I love that 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 phrase, you know, because it makes you think before you say something, you know. Well, it's okay. You cri critic criticize me, criticize you. Say that was a that was a crap performance, or yeah, you know, yeah. that was a crap interview, mm. or you know, but to be so relentless and so yeah. abusive. As Buddha said, is it kind and is it necessary? It was a chance for me to show that I could laugh at myself. And um, I love the experience. And Ricky, whenever I see Ricky, he always says, it's everybody's favorite episode, and um, you know, and that's that's lovely of him to say. But you know, I think it did win a poll as everybody's. And then after that, um, we went and did uh, Life's Too Short. Uh, myself, uh, Sean Williamson, and the wonderful Keith Chegwin. Um, the three of us were uh, were in a, a, a Life's Too Short special that Ricky and Stephen wrote. That was just joy to do with Warwick Davis. So, um, yeah. I, I, I seeing I, those words coming out of the great Chagas, a lovely guy, seeing those words that were in the script coming out of Chagas' <laughs> mouth, which just, I remember that, oh my God, that's brilliant. I've got so much respect for you for doing that, for doing this kind of twisted version of yourself. How would you yeah. be? I'm not sure if I'd be brave enough to do that. It would be all the chickens coming home to roost yeah. and my insecurities. But I, it was, I, I'll tell you, it was the best episode. It was absolutely fantastic. Was there was there ad-libbing and stuff? Were you able to well, do there was, that? Well, it, it was so well written that I didn't feel that it needed it. But at the, at the first rehearsal, I remember saying to Ricky, do you think we could change the last line? He went, what? And I went, well, you've got me in the the scene with the woman in bed in the dark, you know, that I've met in a pub and the, his character calls the pissed up slapper. Um, uh, he said, um, the, the line was, I go, um, um, I don't really know, to her. And she goes, what? And I, I repeat it, I don't really know. <laughs> and she goes, get off. Um, but I said, would it be better if instead of repeating, I don't really know, that I just say, 
if it's up there, I'll give you the money myself. <laughs> and he just laughed like a drain and went, ah, we're having that. You're not having a writing credit, but we're having it. <laughs> so when it came to filming it, um, Ricky is such a giggler. And Stephen um, and Ricky were both behind the camera. And I did the line, if it's up there, I'll give you the money myself. And Ricky laughed out loud. And Stephen said, well, that's that ruined. You, 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 you've ruined the take now. <laughs> um, and eventually he ruined every take and he had to be sent out to the room <laughs> by Stephen. He said, Ricky, go, go, we'll, we'll get it. But dogs, dogs make it all worthwhile. The ups and downs and the travails of life, don't they just? Dogs, they just? yeah, they do, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they, and they brighten my kids' faces and that's, that's a joy as well. Les, what a joy. Thank you very much indeed. It's been absolutely lovely. Thank you for asking. <laughs>